Our scripture passage today comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And uh, this is the beginning of, we're going to be in the next few weeks looking at the, this letter to Colossians and uh, going through most of it. And um, we've called this series uh, Understanding Salvation because as we're going to find throughout Colossians, Paul uh, talks about salvation a lot, not just in any one term, but in many terms. And through this, we will uh, get a better understanding of the great depths of what God did for us and all that he has truly given for us. Uh, today we're starting Colossians 1, 1 to 5, 9, and then 9 to 14. But before we, before we read this, let's uh, pause for a moment in prayer. Good and wonderful Father, Lord, the uh, giver of all good things in this life, Lord, and the giver of this, your holy word. And Father, as we approach it today, Lord, I pray that you would give us a uh, spirit of humility, Lord, to know that this is our teacher in life. Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of understanding that what we hear, Lord, that we could uh, truly take this to heart and to soul and to mind. And Father, I pray that you give us a, a spirit of full understanding, Lord, and a, um, and a spirit of, of submission to you, Lord, that as we hear and as we understand your word, that you would give us the heart and the will to go out and to be obedient, uh, sons and daughters of this, your holy word. So, Father, bless this holy reading of your holy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 and 9 to 14. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I would say Americans in general probably have a reputation, at least on the international stage, of being a religious nation. I think that's the, the reputation we generally share, that Americans are a religious nation, especially uh, among the nations of the West. First world nations of the West, America might be, the most religious nation out there. Now, I think the truth is actually a little bit more conflicted when it comes to true religious devotion. I think on one hand, 
Americans are very religious. But on the other hand, we don't want to be too religious. I mean, I think, I think most Americans like the idea of our religion, especially our Christian religion. We want people to believe in God. We want people to be God-fearing. We want you to go to church, right? We want you to be a good Christian citizen of this nation, but we don't want you to be too religious, right? We don't want you to be one of these crazy, like, real religious people. We want you to still be, you know, reasonable. I want you to be sober-minded about your religion. Don't take it over to extremes or go over the edge. You know, sometimes we even uh, talk about people in those terms. I mean, you've probably heard it. And you see that guy? He's like really religious. Like, I mean, I, don't, don't get me wrong. I believe in God, but he is like way religious. So how religious is too religious? What would it look like to be too religious? Especially in, in a Christian sense. For a Christian, how Christian can you be before you are too Christian till you've gone overboard with your Christianity? I mean, is it if you talk about it all the time? Is that too much? Think about it all the time? If you're one of those that has to go to church on Sunday morning, then Sunday night, and then there for Wednesday Bible study, and then wake up every morning with your own private Bible study, and you pray every single morning, and then go on missions and faithfully tithe, is that too much? What about being a strict Sabbath observer? No work on Sunday, no sports on Sunday, no fun on Sunday. Is that too much? Is it too much if you have to bless your food? Before you could eat a single morsel, let it pass over your lips. Is that too religious? What about if you go out and try to convert people? I mean, that's getting close, right? What about raising your hands in worship and being excited and dancing around and yelling and screaming? Now, we know that's too much, right? At least for us, it is too much. I mean, but is it really bad? I mean, to take the Christian life and go to extremes with it, is it really that bad when you think about it? Now, I want to point out something that an extreme in a Christian belief is not the same thing as extreme in other religious beliefs. All right, to be extreme in other beliefs, to like strap bombs to your chest or go on jihads and holy wars, that's not an extreme Christian practice. That's not an example of someone being too Christian. That's an example of someone being not Christian enough. Because our religion tells us explicitly not to threaten people, but to teach them to be better. So how are you too religious as a Christian? In our faith, what would that look like? Maybe another way of putting it is, how big should Jesus be in your life? How much time and how much space should he occupy in your life? How much should Jesus be able to ask of you? How much should he be able to expect of you? Now, as I ask this question, your, your head's probably telling you one thing, but a lot of your heart starts telling you the exact same thing. The head part's easy. We're in church, right? You know the answer to how much should Jesus ask of you or how much can he ask of you? Because the right answer, of course, is he can ask anything of you. He's Jesus, right? There's no extreme that is too great that we can go for Jesus. That's the right head answer, but our hearts always don't quite aren't always convinced of this. 
Because in our heads, we can answer, and if I were to ask you today, as you leave today, how much should Jesus expect of you? How much can Jesus ask of you? And the answer is always going to be anything. But as we leave church today, and as we go live our lives throughout the week, our hearts tend to disagree. And we sort of think that maybe we might be too religious. I think the problem for a lot of us, and this is going to sound strange, I'm telling you right now, but... The problem for a lot of us is that we grew up in Christian households. That's actually the head and heart problem with a lot of us. We grew up in Christian households. Now, I don't want to say it's bad. It's a great thing to grow up in a Christian household. We are very blessed. All of you who did grow up in Christian households, and you should strive to make your house a Christian household and to raise your children in a Christian way. But a problem can arise if you grew up in this way, that you don't realize what it is you've actually got to have Christ in your life. That growing up with Jesus in your life and growing up knowing God, at least you've grown for years and years, knowing Christ in your life and knowing Him as Savior, I mean, that's a lot like growing up with a bunch of money. Right? It's just what you've always had. And you don't realize what an extraordinary thing it is to have this. I saw this video this week. It was real funny. This girl, she's about maybe 16, 17 years old, and she said that she's going to be a millionaire by the time she's 20. And she had the key to being a millionaire by the time she was 20. Y'all want to know what it is? The secret? Okay, step one, she says, I work for my dad, and he pays me $60,000 a year. That's step one. Now, it turns out her dad is a guy named Grant Cardone. And if you don't know who he is, he's a billionaire. Like, a, with a B, a billionaire. And, and people have made a lot of fun of this girl, just, just, just how out of touch she is. But really, she grew up with her dad as a billionaire. She doesn't know how extraordinary it is to have your father a billionaire. Just like a lot of us, we grew up in the house full of grace and the riches of Jesus Christ, and we don't know how extraordinary it is. Or maybe we've been saved for so long that we've forgotten how extraordinary it is to have the riches of the kingdom of God in our life every single day. And we don't understand how blessed we are to have this thing called salvation. And we're so far removed from that moment when Christ saved us that, that we've forgotten what a miracle and grace-filled thing it is that Christ did for us. And something as amazing, something as wonderful as salvation has become every day to us. Because this is the new normal that we live with. And we've forgotten what an incredible gift it is to be given what Jesus gave to us. Now in this letter we read today, this opening from Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul is encouraging the church at Colossae to live a life that is worthy of Christ. These are the kinds of words, this is what he says to them. He says, from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as, like I want you to be filled with understanding, so that you might, I'm sorry, I'm at verse 9 and 10, by the way, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, 
according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He's wanting them to stay on the path that Christ has set them upon. He is wanting them, encouraging them to give all that they have to Christ and to living a Christ-like way. This is the kind of language he uses here. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Bear fruit in good work. Increase in the knowledge of God. Be strengthened in power according to his might. He's asking the people of the Colossae to, to pursue all these virtues. Righteousness, good work, knowledge, and strength. And as they do so, wanting them to continue with endurance, patience, and joy. Now, as we read through the book of Colossians, we find that Paul talks a lot about salvation. But he doesn't talk about it in just one way. He talks about it in several different ways, as if he wants us to understand fully what it did when Jesus saved us. He wants us to be at least begin to understand fully what happened at that moment of salvation so that we are not those children who have just grown up with a lot of money that believe that this is just the normal, but to understanding what an extraordinary thing it is that Christ gave us. Now, normally in our, in our culture, the way I've seen us talk about salvation or like what happens at salvation, it seems to be we talk about it like it's a change of destination. Like that's, that's what it's about. It's a change of destination, right? Like we were going to one place we don't want to go to, and now we're going to a better place, right? Like you, you used to have a plane ticket. It was taking you to, I don't know, Canada or, 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 or Greenland, you know, Someplace nobody wants to go, but now your ticket has been changed and you're going to Tahiti. You know, praise God, how great that is. You know, you were going to hell, but now you're going to go to heaven. Right? Your destination has changed. It's like you, like I said, you've gotten a, just a new ticket. Or, or, or maybe your, your name's been put on a new list. You know, like the list that a bouncer has at the club. If your name's not on it, you don't get to go through the little velvet rope. Yeah, your name used to be on that crummy club, you know, the one with all the drug dealers and maniacs. Well, lots of dodgy stuff is going on, but now, now your name is on the club with all the A-list celebrities. Praise God, isn't that great? Now, that's not entirely inaccurate. Okay, that, there's a lot of truth to that. That when we were saved, we have a change of destination. We were bound for hell, but now we're going to heaven to be with Christ forever. But I have two problems with talking about salvation in that way. And, and the first problem is that it's all, it's all future-based. Right? The salvation all now takes place in the future. If salvation is just about a change of destination, it's only going to happen in the future, as in you're not going to know anything different until you're dead. Right? That, that's when it's going to take place. Your life is going to be pretty much the same until you die. And once you die, you realize what this great, wonderful thing of salvation is all about. And I know it takes a lot of faith, a lot of endurance. But when you die, you're going to be really happy you made this choice. So it's all based in the future. That's the first problem. The second problem is that talking about salvation as in just a change of destination doesn't begin to plumb the depths of what Christ did for us. Talking about salvation as a change of destination doesn't begin to touch upon the enormity of what happens to us when God saved us, 
when grace comes into our life for the first time, it is more than simply a change, a future destination. When Christ came into our lives, it was more than our future that was changed. Something happened to us that very moment and continues to happen to us throughout the course of our entire lives. And as we see Paul talk about salvation in this letter, we hear that he is encouraging the Colossians for their life of ministry and their life of Christ. As he's talking about this, what he's doing, he's trying to inspire them and encourage them. He wants to inspire them for what he called endurance and patience and with joy for their entire life and for their entire ministry. And the way that he's inspiring them is reminding them what an amazing thing God has done. And reminding them just the full depths of what salvation means to us, not just in the future, but in our present and in our everyday. You know, I've often wondered, um, you know, how come we don't get more excited in church? You know, I mean, you know, not, not, not unlike some churches, but, you know, like you know, putting our hands up and, and yelling and cheering. We don't do that in church, do we? No. And if I were to ask you why, a lot of you might say, well, I'm, just, I'm not that kind of person, right? I'm, I'm, I'm more of a subdued type of person. I'm more quiet and dignified. Well, I bet if I were to go with you to, say, a football game, Carolina or Clemson or whatever, you know, pick your poison, I bet I would find someone that had a lot of excitement in them had a lot of exuberance in them. Some of the same people who don't want to cheer and yell and raise their hands in church, if you go to a football game, you see them sometimes acting like a total madman, jumping up and down, cheering, high-fiving total strangers. I mean, beer might have something to do with it. But I used to think, now this, I, I used to think, I'm not going to be as critical as you think I'm about to be. I used to think that it was a problem of devotion. I thought, how can we cannot get as excited about God as we do about football games? Especially Carolina football. It's not like we got, like, you know, loads of national championships to be excited about, but we still do it. How come we don't get as excited about Jesus as we do about football? I used to think it was a problem of devotion, but a pastor, a friend of mine, pointed something out to me that was very telling and very true. And he says, the reason why we don't cheer that much in church it's because we don't see what's happening. Because we don't see what's going on. In the football field, we can see the great pass, the great run, the great block, the great tackle, the run back for the touchdown. We see all those things with our eyes and we cheer with them. But in church, we don't know what's going on really. And if we could see what's happening in the spiritual world when we come to worship God, I don't think we could be quiet. I don't think we would ever stop. I don't think we would ever want to leave this room and an eternity would seem like just an hour being here. If we could see what grace really did, if we could see the depths of what salvation really did for us, we would not shut up about it. We would not stop talking about it. We would not stop cheering about it. We would not stop yelling about it. See, understanding salvation, even just, even just a little bit better, we can find strength for everything that Christ has commanded us to do. Understanding this salvation just a little bit better, find that this Christian life is not a burden, 
It's a joy. We would find the strength to live it not with just joy, but with great enthusiasm. And so Paul wants to remind us what it is exactly Christ has done for us. And the first thing he reminds us is that you were taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of Christ. These are his words, verse 13. He, meaning God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The first thing I want you to notice about that is the tense of the verb he used. He has taken us out. This is not a future tense. It's not he will take us out one day. He has taken us out. In the Greek, it's the aorist. We don't have that tense, but it's got a lot of the past perfect in it already. This is something he has already done. He has taken us out of the domain of darkness already and put us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is something he's already done. He has already delivered you from darkness, and he has already delivered you into the light. See, when he found us, when he found us, when he knew us originally, we were under the rule of the dark. We were under the realm of dark. We belonged to the dark. We were slaves to the dark. We were citizens of another kingdom. And if y'all are wondering, what does that mean? What does it look like if we're under the domain of darkness? It means exactly what it th sounds like. I mean, just take a minute and let your imagination run wild. And to think of what it means to be under the domain and under the rule of darkness. Let your imagination do its worst. Go to the worst place you can to think of what that means to be under the domain of darkness. And whatever you're imagining, the worst place you can go, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. Because in the domain of darkness, you wonder who rules over it. Well, that's Satan, the father of lies, the prince of darkness himself. And that means we were under his domain, under his rule. He was our master. He was our king. So when Christ saves us, when Christ chose you, he rescued you from this domain and from this darkness. When Christ saved you and he rescued you, he said that the dark was going to have the power over you no more. You were no longer a citizen of darkness, no longer a slave to sin, no longer under the dominion of death and sin and evil. When Christ you, he met Satan on your behalf face to face and said, this child of mine is yours no longer, now he belongs to me. Now you are mine, paid for with my flesh and blood, ransomed by my broken body upon the cross. You were taken out of darkness, and now you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, not in the future, not later, not after death, now, out of darkness, and they made sons and daughters of the living God. So understanding this, knowing this, let's go back to our first question then. What would be too much for Jesus to ask of you? What are the limits of what you owe Christ? 
considering at least this one aspect, this little bit we know of what Christ did for us, where now can you draw the line in your life and say, okay, here's the limit and no for Jesus, now you've asked too much of me here. How much is too much to give him? Is all your money, is that too much? Your devotion? Your love? Your life, does, does that begin to pay back what Christ did for us? We could give all of this and more, and we would still owe him. To put it in accountant's terms, we could give everything we have, and we would still be in the red with Jesus. He's ransomed our souls from a terrible, terrible place, and he gave it back. He gave it back and so much more in return. He forgave every sin you've ever committed. He wiped it away clean. He gave you a portion of his inheritance in the kingdom. He gave you a life that is more than life now. So what is that worth? What exactly now do you owe him? How religious is too religious. How Christian now do you have to be until you're too Christian? I'm not going to answer that for you. I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer that for yourself. But for me, I will say that understanding salvation is understanding how much we truly owe Christ. Understanding salvation is understanding that he gave us what we cannot give to ourselves. Understanding salvation is to know that you can serve him with a life and that it's still a price too small to pay in exchange for the riches of his glory. Those, who's, though, those he has given us and those he has yet to give. So friends, may you be strengthened in all endurance, patience, and joy, knowing that salvation belongs to you. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.